you would take your Bible and turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. We're going to begin there tonight. We're going to look at a lot of passages of Scripture. I'm going to try and take my time and go through this slowly. And this is taken really from a pamphlet written by Pastor Doug Hammett. What we're going to be looking at a biblical view of self. Biblical view of self. Psalm 139 and verse 14 through 16 says this, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! Let's have a word for Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity and privilege you have to open your word tonight. And as we consider this subject, we pray that you give wisdom and understanding and give us ears to hear and help us to be attentive to thy word. And I pray, Father, that you'd work in our lives that we might come to a biblical view of ourselves and that we might be better equipped to serve you um, in fear and reverence. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Of course, the popular idea or belief about self today is that you need to have a good self-esteem. You need to think well of yourself. Um, You need to have a positive self-image. And, of course, this has been promoted for the last 40, 50 years. Uh, You know, an offshoot of that is you shouldn't correct children because you could wound their self-image or their self-esteem or their psychic, you know, if you correct them or discipline them. It's all part of that philosophy. Um, You know, we're told that the cornerstone of our well-being is if we have to feel good about ourselves. And and some have said that's the greatest need facing the human race today is self-esteem. I remember David Cloud in his Way of Life magazine several years ago wrote an article about the self-esteem images being promoted. And, of course, it's been promoted now for 30 years. We said young people have a worse self-image of themselves than they ever had. Um, and so the question we should ask ourselves as Christians is, is this a biblical view? And does it, of course, foster growth, spiritual growth, and emotional stability. Uh, You might see there's some examples of a low self-esteem in the Bible. He gives a few here. Look at Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 31. Ezekiel 36 and verse 31. Ezekiel 36, 31. It says, Then shall ye remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good, and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. Uh, You know, Job said in Job 42 in verse 6 that he said he abhorred himself and repented in dust and in ashes. Uh, 
1 Corinthians 13 tells us in verses 1 and 2 there that if we can have all kinds of gifts and abilities and everything, but if we have love, we are what? Nothing. I'm often reminded of what uh, John wrote in John 15. I think it's verse 5 where the end of verse 5 said, Jesus said, without me ye can do nothing. I don't know what that does to your self-esteem, but it doesn't really pump mine up. Uh, of course, in Romans 7, 24 and 25, the Apostle Paul said, O wretched man that I am, who should deliver me from this body of death? Now, this is not Saul of Tarsus saying this. This is the Apostle Paul saying this. So, in reality, a low self-esteem, quote-unquote, may be in fact true of you of a person. Um, you know, there's, of course, there's various types of people in the world. Some people say they are no good. Uh, there's people who state it and don't mean it. Uh, you know, I remember, I remember a guy saying it that some years ago that he hated himself. And I said, just a wife later, I said, I don't know, it looks to me like he takes pretty good care of himself. He, you know, he said it, but he didn't really mean it. Uh, and, and, of course, there are all those who mean it and are not right about themselves. But, so we must ask the question, you know, is it possible to have a negative self-image, biblically be in line with the Word of God, and yet have an emotional, a healthy emotional life? Well, again, Paul in Romans 7.24 Oh, wretched man that I am, he said. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, you know, the prophet Isaiah in the first five chapters was you know, preaching judgment against the nation of Israel for all the wickedness. And then in verse chapter 6, he saw also the Lord high and lifted up. And he, said, he came to this conclusion about himself. Then said I, not the nation, those wicked people out there, you know, they were, the first five, chap, chap, five chapters, there was wicked Israel, and then there was Isaiah pronouncing all this judgment. But in chapter 6, he sees the Lord, and then he says this, Woe is me, for I am an undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So when he saw God, he realized his true state of affairs. And yet Paul would say in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished the course. Now, can you have both of those views? The answer is yes. But how did Paul fight the good fight? We know that he fought the good fight by the... He said this in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And then it, we'll look a bit later, but, and we'll see this a little bit later in the message, but you go to John 15, and it's in, in Christ you bring forth fruit, but without me you can do nothing. So it's all about being in Christ. Now, as we think about all this, there's two wrong schools of thought that he brings out here in these notes that is, that is popular 
uh, in Christian circles, the wrong views in regard to a person's self-image. The first view is that that of what's called, quote, the victorious life theology, quote, unquote. Uh, It's espoused by groups known as the Keswick Convention. And the basic premise, they have five premises upon which this is built, and I'll give you those five. So this is their, their wrong thinking. First of all, deliverance from sin and tendency towards sin is not obtained in the Christian life. Notice the words. In the Christian life. This is what we're talking about saved people here. So this deliverance from sin and tendency towards sin is not obtained in the Christian life by struggle and painful effort. Let me ask you something. If you're going to get victory over sin, do you have to put forth some effort? Absolutely you do. You know, as a child of God, you know, it is God that gives us that victory, but we have, it's, it, let me say it this way. Peter commanded us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I think it's 2 Peter 3.18. Okay? How do you grow? If you want Callan to grow, and if you want uh, Lydia to grow, what do they have to do? They have to be fed, and when they get a little bit older, they have to feed themselves. If you're going to see growth, you have to feed. If anything is going to grow, you have to feed it. And we have to feed. God isn't going to force feed us. He doesn't just do things automatically for us. If we want victory as Christians, we have to feed ourselves on the Word of God. It's our spiritual food. Again, Paul talked about this in Romans chapter 7, and he makes an interesting statement there in Romans 7 and verse 23 in that passage. He talks about the the struggle that he had, and he says this, But I see another law in my members warring. Warring. Is war a struggle? Is it a battle? Yeah, it is. Warring against the law of my mind and bringing me in captivity the law of sin which is in my members. So he's talking about this struggle that he had in himself. You know, sometimes we look at Paul and we say, well, he, he, just, he, just, he was just uh, so given to God, he never struggled against his flesh. Wrong. He said, I got this war going on in my flesh. I don't think that he thought every day that he was... that. that that he would enjoy getting chased out of another city or having the Jews the possibility of going out in public and being killed by those who wanted him dead. So every day, I believe that Paul had these, would have had these things in his mind and the devil tried to use those things to keep him locked up in a basement. Somewhere, so nobody could ask him any questions. Uh, you know, no. So he had this battle. So, so that's one premise. They say that that deliverance from sin and tendency towards sin is not obtained in the Christian life by struggle and painful effort. That's just not true. Second thing they they say is once we have put our case in the Lord's hand, we just sit still and let the Lord take over. So we just sit around and do nothing, wait for the Lord to take over. Matthew 3, 8, 
John the Baptist told the Pharisees to bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance. In other words, I want to see some actions that show what you say. And in Galatians chapter 5, in verse 16 and 17, right into the churches of Galatia, who were struggling with uh, some false doctrine that was brought in by those who, uh, by, by some others, and so there was a war there going on between the truth and falsehood. And he says in verse 16, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So you have these two opposing uh, 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 forces. You have the Spirit of God, who is God that dwells within us when we get saved. You have the flesh, which you are still part of your, you, you are flesh. He says, so, so you're walking in the Spirit so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the spirit, ye are not under the law. So, so the Bible here talks about, no, we got this struggle, and we can't just sit idle. We have to, somebody said, it's like you have two dogs in you. And whichever one you say sick them to wins. In other words, whichever one you yield to is going to win. If you yield to the flesh, the flesh is going to win. If you yield to the Spirit, the Spirit of God is going to win. Uh, so we just can't sit still and let the Lord take over. No, we have to battle the flesh. Uh, in in uh, uh, Colossians chapter 3, he tells us to crucify the flesh with the affections and lust thereof. Third thing they say is, if our deliverance and activity is not easy to do, then it must not be of God. Well, Jude, verse 3, says this, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. In other words, earnestly contend. It's kind of a word picture of a wrestling match. Now, have any of you ever wrestled? You men ever wrestled? I'm, I don't imagine you girls did, but but you, know, you men ever wrestled? Was it easy? Did you have to exert some effort? Well, if you want to win, you did. Unless you want to be looked at as a wimp or a sissy, you know, one of those nice fellows. No, you put forth some effort. You contended. You earnestly, you agonized. And that's the idea of the word here, agonize. Earnestly contend. And Judah's telling us, look, if you're going to keep the faith, you're going to have to contend for it. If you're going to stay faithful, you're going to have to put forth some effort. You've got to contend for it. The Bible doesn't promise that it would be easy. God didn't promise anyone easy. It wasn't easy for Jeremiah. It wasn't easy for Isaiah. It wasn't easy for the Apostle Paul. Uh, although they had the joy of the Lord in their lives, it still was not easy. They had to put forth some effort. A fourth thing, if you work for victory, it must be a counterfeit victory. 
Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 and verse 12 and 13 says this, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The word there, work out, means do that from which something results. Now, we have to do that. You know, we go back to that spirit or the flesh. And we need to do that which, from which we get results. If you do that which pleases the flesh, you're going to get results of the flesh. If you do that which pleases the spirit, if you feed on the word of God and apply it to your life, submitting to the Holy Spirit, you're going to get that which results from the work of the spirit. So we have to allow, we have to do that which works out the will of God in our life. It's the same word that's used in Ephesians 6.13, where it says there, Ephesians 6.13, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all, that's that's the word, done all, work out, done all, to stand. So we have to, you know, we, we have to, it's, it's like a soldier has to pick up the pieces of armor and put them on before he goes into the battlefield. He puts on the armor, he puts on his helmet, uh, uh, he puts on his, his uh, 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 ammunition and his weapons, his offensive weapons, you know, back then it was a sword, now it's rifles and guns, you know, and all that kind of stuff. He puts it all that on before he goes in. That's preparation for the day's battle. And God is telling us, look on, put on the armor of God. That's what we have to do as Christians if we're going to be victorious over the devil. It means that we, you know, it's an everyday thing where we remind ourselves that God is with us. God's promised his power. His promises are true. He will bring to pass what he said he will do. And we must have confidence that His way is the right way, that He is good, His way is best, His way is right, and it is for our benefit. Bless the Lord, all my soul, and forget not all His benefits. There are benefits from serving God. The way of the transgressor is hard. I mean, if we don't obey God, and if we don't remind ourselves, you know, what we learn today from the Word of God will not carry us through tomorrow's battles. So we have to work out your salvation. It's God that works in. You see, when we we pick up the Bible and read what God did for Daniel when he was tossed in the lion's den, that increases our faith. That gives us courage. If God did that for Daniel, that's the same God I serve. He can do that for me. That increases our faith. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And it's with the faith that we are overcome all the, quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, verse 16 says. So, so we have to, you know, as Christians, we need to 
take up the Word of God and apply it to everyday life, uh, that means work. We have to, we have to put forth some effort. Uh, the fifth thing they say is, self is so bad that it cannot enter into the struggle of living for God. Self is so bad that it cannot enter into the struggle of living for God. That almost reminds me of the Gnostics who said that the flesh is separate from the spirit. And you could be corrupt in the flesh, but right in the spirit in the same body. And they're saying that self is so bad that it cannot enter into the struggle of living for God. The Bible tells us what? To not yield to the flesh, to subdue the flesh, to crucify the flesh, to deny the flesh. What does 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 tell us? We're to glorify God in our body. What's your body? Your body's flesh. So if we yield that body that is flesh to God, it does enter into the struggle of living for God. So this, this, this view then that you can't do this, it's all of God, you can't do it, nothing you can do basically, will either develop into one of two things, either pride in their seeming victory or ability to live for God. You know, it, it le- what it leads to is the idea that you become, at a certain point, you come to a place where you're of sinless perfection, where you don't sin anymore. And there are actually people, particularly in the holiness movement, that actually believe that. You know, they, 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 they talked about the second blessing, and that is you come to a place in your Christian life where you don't sin anymore. I only have a couple opinions about that. Either one, they're so proud of themselves and so full of themselves they're not even saved. Or secondly, they're just a a good liar and a self-deceit. Or it's going to develop into a morbid introspection where you'll never be able to live for God in an effective way. You'll just give up and quit. That's not what the Bible teaches. Again, uh, Romans 8.13 tells us, Romans 8.13, it says, If you live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify, that is, put to death to crucify, the deeds of the body, ye shall live. So again, God doesn't give us instruction that we cannot do or cannot keep. So, we can mortify or we can reckon dead the flesh, not yield to it, and glorify God in a body of flesh. That is possible. That is what God desires of us. Paul said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my horse. I have kept the faith. What he do that in? Some spiritual invisible body? <laughs> no, he did it in a body of flesh. Because he yielded every day, he had to he had to yield that body to the Lord Jesus Christ, renewing his mind with the Word of God and and trusting in the promises of God that that he would see him through that day, that he would live through another day, that whatever happened that day was God's will for his life. That's what he resigned himself to. 
So that's the first wrong thought. You, you know, there's nothing you can really do. Just let God take over. The second view is basically that, that man is everything and needs a positive image of himself. And of course, you have men like Clyde Naramore and Zig Ziglar and these... Uh, um, they're, they're popular Christian psychologists and promoting good self-image of, of yourself and all this kind of stuff. But it, that's an unbalanced theology, uh, and, and it's a warped view of the doctrine of man because it places man as for, first and foremost. And, and, uh, and, and instead of saying, oh, wretched man that I am, it has become, oh, wonderful man that I am. <laughs> I'm just a wonderful guy, you know. You know, they ignore verses like Galatians 6, 3. Uh, you know, of course, they, they, they talk a lot about Genesis 1, 31, where it says that yeah, everything that God made was very good. Well, yeah, but that was before the fall. So in man's... Edenic state, he was very good. He was very good in every aspect. Then sin came. And of course, Galatians 6, 3 says, For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. So, so basically, creation is emphasized, but the fall is kind of ignored with that kind of philosophy. And, of course, progressive sanctification is also ignored. That God wants us to grow in our Christian life. So, so there's two views, of, two wrong views of, views of thought there. But let's look at a, a biblical view. So, to, of course, in order to arrive at this, we have to think as what God says. We have to come to, to God's Word and see what He says re- regarding this thing. So, so, first of all, to have a biblical view of oneself, we should recognize there's one area that is supreme importance in a person's life, and that is his relationship with God. That is primary. That is most important. Uh, Matthew 6.33 says, Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. In Luke chapter 10, verse 42. Jesus said to Martha, One thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Now, Martha was not doing anything that was bad. She just had her priorities mixed up. Serving the Lord and His disciples with food was not a wicked sin. But it was a sin when she should have been listening to the teaching of Jesus and was worried about and fretting over what they were going to eat instead. So Jesus is telling her, look, Martha, what's most important is what Mary's doing. That's what's most important. And see, that's what's most important. Uh... You know, of course, the self-esteem crowd says the greatest needs to have good view of oneself. Well, if you read God's word, you're going to find out that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And if you if you get a glimpse of God like Isaiah did, you're going to come to the same conclusion: I am wicked. My heart is deceitful. 
So the greatest need is to have a right relationship with God and seek Him first. You, the great commandment in Matthew 22 and verses 35 through 40, there's an interesting statement there I want to draw your attention to in Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40. Uh, of course, Jesus is questioned, a lawyer. He uh, asked him a question, tempting him, and said, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Matthew twenty-two thirty-six. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Notice verse 40. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, you could sum that verse up by saying this. The whole Bible and our relationship with God is summed up in these two statements. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you love God with all your heart, that's what the, the law and the prophets are about. And then, treating your neighbor as if he's your brother made in the image of God. So it teaches you to have a right relationship with God, which will enable you to have a right relationship with your fellow man. So all the, all the, all the law and the prophets is summed up with those two verses. And it, and it really, what it establishes is a right relationship with God, which then establishes a right relationship with our fellow man. It works in us to teach us how to treat, how to have good relationships with people. So we have to recognize the supreme importance in life is a right relationship with God. That's, that's most important. Secondly, we have to recognize that even though, that, though we have negative input about our life from others, we can still be joyful and produce and be productive in the Christian realm and have a, have a healthy emotional life. Now, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. 1 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10. So, you know, though there's negative inputs, you know, in this world we're going to receive negative inputs from people, some even maybe well-meaning, and they're going to be negative. But despite all that, if we have a right relationship with God, we can have a productive Christian life and a healthy emotional life. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8 through 10 says, Now you're full, now you're rich. Well, I'm sorry, it's supposed to be 2 Corinthians 4. I thought that doesn't look right. 2 Corinthians 4, I'm sorry. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 10. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Okay, so where's all this trouble coming from? It's coming from other people. So Paul's getting all this negative input from other people in his life. He says, I'm troubled, but I'm not distressed. I'm perplexed, but I'm not in despair. I'm persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. So despite all this negative input he had 
from the people around him wherever he would go and from from his brethren back in Judea that that you know followed and instigated a lot of this trouble, though he had all this negative input, his relationship with God was still right. And he still treated people right. He had their best interests in mind. Giving them the gospel. Even those who persecuted him. Chapter 6, verse 4. But in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned. You know, what a display of love Paul demonstrated at Philippi. When he's thrust into the inner chamber by the jailer, and then there's an earthquake after they sang and prayed, there's an earthquake, and the jailer's going to kill himself. The guy that just thrust him in and placed his feet and hands in stocks. Paul says, Do thyself no harm, we're all here. Then he preached the gospel to him. And he gets saved. See, what was done to him didn't change his view. He still was productive. Now, now, I don't know about you, but it would kind of tend to tick me off. I mean, I don't have to be thrust in jail. All I do is read some of the news things and it makes me angry. You know. It makes me tend to want to do things that really aren't right. You know. But not Paul. Chapter 11. And, and I'm not going to read all this for sake of time, but he talks about all the things that he suffered. Um, you know, and that's, that's where he talks about the, the stripes, the beaten with rods, suffered shipwreck, journeys and perils. So all these things he endured... And much of this stuff at the hands of people who treated him wrongly, and yet he still re- he still maintained the joy of the Lord and a productive Christian life. And when he wrote to the Thessalonians in First Thessalonians chapter one verse five, that, you know he reminds them that they illustrated this truth also when he says in First Thessalonians one five, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power. And the Holy Ghost, and much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake, you became followers of us up in the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. So, so in much affliction, remember, there was a riot stirred up at Thessalonica. He just came from Philippi, and he comes to Thessalonica, and he preaches the gospel there, and there's people getting saved, but the Jews stirred up the unbelievers and brought a, a assault against them, and he had to flee for his life. And he said, in the midst of all this... You receive the word of God with joy. Joy. So that from you, sound it out to the word of the Lord only, 
in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad. So they received the word of God joyfully, even in the midst of affliction, and continued to be productive for the Lord, witnessing to everyone they met. So despite the fact that we can have negative input from other people in life, and you're going to have them. Yea, that all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And that sometimes comes from the most unlikely places. And they do hurt. But if you maintain your fellowship with God, your right relationship with God, you can continue on with a joyful spirit knowing that you are doing what is right. Because the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Third thing, we need to recognize that God has made us in the image of God. So yes, we are made in the image of God and all that that involves. And he, whatever he made was very good. The Bible tells over and over again that we were made in his image. Genesis 1.27, Genesis 5, 1-3, Genesis 9.6 tells us we're made in his image. Romans 8.28-29 tells us to be conformed to the image of his son. That image has been tarnished and obscured. It is not that the individual is of great value, but it is Christ that is of great value. And we have to portray him in our daily life. Again, John 15. I'm going to stop here tonight. John 15 and verses 1 through 6. Jesus is addressing his disciples just before he's crucified. And he says, I am the true vine. My father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. You know, if you want the most productive fruit off your fruit tree, you need to prune it. You need to prune it. I remember we had a grape harbor, the first place where we lived. In the first year, I didn't do anything to it. Didn't tend it at all, really. And, and, uh, you know, we had some a few grapes, but not a whole lot. The next year, I thought, you know, I should trim that thing. And it was, you know, it was just grown over. It was just vines went everywhere. I thought, I ought to prune that thing. So I asked around a little bit, and, and some people would give me some ideas. So, I, boy, I pruned it. And I thought it was going to die. It, it was a little bit late. I found out it was a little bit late to actually do it, and it bled a lot, you know, so a lot of sap came out of the vines and, I thought, yeah, I don't know, we're going to get, we may, I may have killed this thing. But we got more grapes that year than we did the previous year. He purges it, purifies it, that it may bring forth more fruit. We, now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. So unless we walk in fellowship with the Lord, we can't bear no fruit. We can't bear fruit for the Lord. We can't. The flesh cannot please God. 
But if we walk in the Spirit, we can bring forth fruit unto life. I am the vine, verse 5, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them, cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, you ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Here is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. So, you know, despite the fact that we're made in the image of God, that image has been tarnished and obscured by the by sin. Of course, it's the the what is of value is Christ in us. That's what is able enables us to produce fruit. Uh, and so uh, we need to we need to. Um, Work at, or produce, or abide in the vine. Walk in fe- That's what it means to walk in fellowship with God. To spend time in His Word, and apply it to life. Allow the Spirit of God to work in us. And so, uh, you know, and of course that will, you know, and we'll get to this a little bit more, but, but uh, that will... Give us confidence and assurance. Again, that confidence comes from God, not from self. God gives us that. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. The name of the Lord is strong confidence, the Bible says. And so, so we'll, we'll pick up here next week and we'll finish this um, um, little pamphlet on the biblical view of self. So, uh, help, might God help us to rest in Him and realize our need of Him and need to abide in Him and walk with Him in obedience to His Word, feeding on His Word that we might be victorious and uh, useful in His service.